All right, guys, it's so good to, to be here with you guys today, to be uh, really back behind this pulpit, Lord, or, uh, guys, after three weeks out. Um, I just feel uh, just a little bit extra excitement this week preparing. So thanks, Shane and Jeff, for you know giving me a giving me a little bit of a break. So uh, it's good to be here. Good to be with you guys. Uh, we're gonna if you'll turn in your Bible. We're not gonna read it yet, but uh, we're back in First Peter chapter uh, one verses. 13 through 16 today. But while you're turning there, while I'm turning there, just kind of by way of introduction, I just want to kind of get our minds flowing, uh, really with how the text starts out. It's just, I want you to think about, guys, whenever, um, you know, the way we react when people, when people maybe do a good deed for us, okay, when... Um, when somebody does something good for you, we, we naturally desire to respond in a positive way. You know, think about parents. Think about when your children, you know, are obedient to you. Or think about even more so when they're, when they're obedient or they maybe do something as far as way of chores when they're not asked. Doesn't that make you feel good? Doesn't that make you want to respond in a positive way towards your kids? Uh... You know, any time we have a kind deed done to us, whether or a kind service or somebody does something for us, what do we do? We do things like we send a thank you card. Maybe you have a good boss or maybe you've had a good boss. I don't know about y'all, but I've had bosses that weren't so good to work for. But when you have a good boss, what does it do? It, it motivates you to respond positively to... Uh, you know, it motivates you to work in a greater way. We're, we're made in God's image. We naturally respond these ways. Kids, how about when you, when you, um, you know, you meet other kids and they're friendly towards you and they talk to you. And it naturally makes you want to be friendly back. And then lastly, husbands and wives. Wives, do you not want to love your husband even more so when he's, when he's loving you like the way he's supposed to? I've experienced that with my wife, and vice versa. And I and I say that, guys, we just we naturally respond with positive responses when 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 an individual does something good to us. You, you, and you, you may be asking, okay, where are you going with this? Well, that's really the transition we see in the text today. In verse twelve, or in verse uh, in verse thirteen. In our text, 1 Peter, verse 13, he starts off with therefore. And I think you guys know, anytime that word is there, we have to think about what's above it. And so really, this point on in this letter, really all the way through the end of the book, not, not completely, but it's a lot of action now. A lot of imperatives. You know, it really makes you think of a book like, like Ephesians. I mean, it's like three chapters doctrine, what God has done for us. And then in verse 4, he starts out, you know, therefore because of this, live a life worthy of of your calling. Really the same idea here. We see a transition in verse 13. He says, therefore. Um, If you want to go ahead and stand, and I'll read verses 13 through 16, and then we'll look at why that word is there, therefore. And we'll get started. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. He says, therefore... 
Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You guys can be seated. So yeah, he says, therefore, he's going he's gonna to begin, you know, we're going to have some imperatives today. And like I said, really, really from here on throughout the book, not, not completely, but there is a shift here. So what we're seeing is, is our response, right, to what God has done for us. We talked about how we, we naturally respond when, when somebody does something good for us, guys. We need to remember what God has done for us. That's the whole idea. But he says, therefore, let's, let's have a quick review. We haven't been in this uh, book in about three weeks, so let's have a quick review and look at what he means by therefore. Back up in verse 3, we see, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. So we see, we're reminded that God has saved us, right? God has caused us to be born again. He is the one that acted. And He did so out of His abundant mercy. That we had a living hope. We're going to talk about hope again today. The title of the message is to be, to be hopeful and to be holy. But we talked about our, our hope that we have. Back up in verse 3. It's our living hope through the resurrection of Christ. This is all entailed in that word therefore. Because of these things... Because God has saved you by His mercy. Because He has given us an inheritance that He talks about in verse 4. Remember that inheritance that reserved in heaven for you? It ain't going nowhere. The inheritance is our salvation. That it's imperishable. Undefiled will not fade away. It's reserved for you. You're protected by the power of God, right? Remember how we talked about that? We're protected by God's power. That word meaning that it protects us from outside danger and it protects us from escaping. It's the whole idea of uh, once you're His, you're His. Therefore, because of these things, because God has saved you, because He's protecting you, even, even the trials we looked at, we can be grateful for, right? When we go through trials that God is gracious, He loves us, He doesn't send us through trials to, to, to destroy us, but to strengthen us, to cause us to trust in Him, to, to reveal to us the, the reality of our faith. And that's something we should rejoice in. That's really where we, we do a lot of growing in these trials. We, we can see how, you know, we talked about this Wednesday night. Uh, I believe it was Wednesday night. Uh, I can't remember who I was talking with. It. But anyway, just about the different trials we go through. And that's where we, we tend to we tend to really come to grips with how strong or weak our faith is. So those are good things. We rejoice in those things. Verse 8, the fact that we come through these trials, these trials that God puts us through in life, and it reveals the reality of our genuine faith, and that in verse 8, not only do these trials not destroy our faith, but it strengthens our faith, and we can rejoice that that even through all of these trials that we go through, and in their case, remember, severe persecution, but we still love this God who we've never seen. Have you ever thought about that? 
You have never seen Jesus Christ. Why do you keep going back to Him daily? you never seen Him, but you believe in Him. These are, these, are, these are reasons in that message we looked at to rejoice the reality of our faith. This salvation, this so, this salvation the, the greatness of our salvation that God has given us, that the Old Testament prophets searched and inquired of these things to understand it more fully, that the angels of God seek to look into these things. All of these things, guys. This great salvation that God has given you by His grace, in His mercy, is what leads up to verse 13. And now He's going he's gonna to turn and um, He's going to have a few, a few commands for us today. And, it's, and, it's, and I've just entitled it to be hopeful and to be holy. And so the first thing we're going to look at, I've got it broken up in three major headings. Uh, the first one in verse 13, being, being prepared in our mind for action. The second one, being hopeful in our future. That's also in verse 13. And then in verse 14, um, where is it at? Being holy in our lives. Okay, so the first thing we're going to see in verse 13 is being prepared in our mind for, for action. The NAS phrases it like this, prepare your minds for action. The literal meaning is to gird up the loins of your mind. To gird up the loins of your mind. And that's real important to remember that the the readers of Peter's day would have understood that. In ancient times, long robes were worn. That's, That's what the whole idea of this girding up the loins. They wore long robes and what they would do, the girding up the loins... If I can picture it right, guys, it's, it's picture long robes, and they would pull these robes, uh, they would pull them up behind their back, or they would pull them up in front, take them between their legs, and grab each side, and then tie them back around their waist, tucking them in their belt. That's the girding up of the loins. So if you can picture that in your mind. Now, why would they do this? What, what is so important about girding up the loins? I don't know about you guys, but for a long time, I would hear that phrase and wonder what in the world it meant. Gird up your loins. Well, to be ready for action. To be ready for action. That was the whole point of it. Whether it be running, or whether it be some kind of battle or fighting, these long robes, obviously, I think we can picture that in our mind, would hinder you from running fast. They would hinder you in many different ways. They would get in your way. We can see a few, uh, a few examples of this in the Old Testament just to get the, get, the, get the idea of our mind of how biblical this statement was back in the ancient times. So in Exodus 12.11, this is at the first Passover, or at the Passover, uh, you know, the night God was delivering Israel from Egypt. He had promised to come and He was going to kill all the firstborn in Egypt, all the firstborn sons, and all, and even of the the animals. Told he told Moses to tell the people to uh, sacrifice a, a lamb, an unblemished male lamb, put the blood on the doorposts and the lentils, and he would pass over. And so he says this in in his instructions to Moses: Now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat. In haste, 
You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So obviously we can see an example of it right there in Exodus 12. They were to gird up their loins. Why? Because they were going to be needing to move in haste. Jeremiah 1.17, we can see it. God tells Jeremiah, Now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all which I command you. He was warning them about the coming judgment from the, from the folks up north, the Babylonians. And he said, Gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all which I command you. They will fight against you. The people of Judah, they're going to fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. So we see in Exodus, girding up the loins, signifying they're going to need to be moving with haste. And with, with Jeremiah, he's instructed to gird up his loins just to be ready for action. And this is not even necessarily physical battle, but to preach my word. It's going to be intense. Jeremiah, gird up your loins. Be ready for action. Be courageous. What are some phrases in our day that would be similar to this? How about fasten your chin strap? It's the same language. Get ready. Get ready for action. I can remember, I think it was probably it was probably after the election back in January. You know, whenever we could finally see the results of how this thing was going. And uh, my friend Jeff Rose texted me. You know, we had been just talking about the possibilities of what our nation's going to be. And I, and I just remember him saying, man, brother, what do we do from here? And my natural response, I just like, buckle your chin strap. Isn't that what we've been saying? With what's coming, we need to buckle our chin strap and just get ready. That's the whole idea. Buckle your chin strap, fasten your belt. Roll up your sleeves, get ready for action. That's the simple idea of gird up your loins. Get ready for action. Gird up, but he says, uh, if you have a King James or New King James, it's gird up the loins of your mind. Okay? Gird up the loins of your mind or prepare your minds for action is the NAS and I think the ESV as well. So the girding up the loins, that that's really gives us a picture when we think about the girding up the loins, but what it means is to prepare. To prepare for action. In this case, prepare, Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. What does it look like to prepare our minds for action? Or what does it look like to, to gird up the loins of your mind? Well, think of the loose ends. I mean, because what is it? What is it? What are you doing when you gird up your loins? You're 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 tucking the loose ends in, protecting it with a belt so it doesn't hinder you. So he's telling us to prepare, prepare our minds, gird up the loins of your minds, so the loose ends that hinder you in your thinking, all of those loose ends of your thinking. Maybe to help us understand this, let's look at a few scriptures, and or you don't have to turn there, but Ephesians six fourteen. Paul says, of course, this is when he's uh, instructing them to put on the armor of God. He says, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Okay? Gird your loins with truth. The ESV says, having fastened on the belt of truth. So so it's really helpful to have that picture of, of, of these people girding up their loins by tucking in their robes, the corners of the robes, putting it under the belt, we get, a, we get a visual. But we're being commanded to do this in our minds. Colossians 3.2 Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. 
In other words, guys, be spiritually alert. That's what Peter's telling his readers. Be spiritually alert. Hebrews 12.1 says this. In the Christian Standard Bible, CSB, I like the way it words it. It just uses the word hindrance. Let us lay aside every hindrance. Okay, to follow after Jesus Christ, to live a faithful Christian life, a productive Christian life, a fruitful Christian life, we have to lay aside every hindrance, everything that's going to hinder us. And it's not even necessarily outright sins, but just things that hinder us. These loose ends in our lives. Um, and then 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 5, I really think helps us to understand this whole deal about preparing our minds, about tying up the loose ends of our mind. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Paul tells Timothy, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Okay, so Peter, or so Paul is telling Timothy, first of all, suffer hardship with me. Think about what Peter's readers were going through. They were going through hardship. They were going through suffering. And, and think about, in Timothy, the language here. He says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Think of the whole idea of girding up your loins, of preparing. No soldier and active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Again, he's using this as a picture of the Christian life. What happens if we get when we get and when we get entangled in the affairs of everyday life? And let's face it, guys, we, we all have many responsibilities. So the Bible's not saying don't deal with your responsibilities, but we can get so distracted with the affairs of everyday life to where these things are they really become loose ends in our mind. And, and Peter is telling us, and I think the same principle here that Paul is saying, don't entangle yourself in the affairs of everyday life. Why? So that you may please the one that enlisted you as a soldier. It's the same idea. We've got to tie up all of these distractions, all of these loose ends that distract us from what God has called us to do. From the most important. So what things, when we think about these things, guys, when we think about these loose ends in our lives that distract us, that hinder us, that are hindrances, or, the, or like, like Paul saying, the affairs of everyday life that we can so easily get entangled in, what things in your life or what things in your mind it could be just things that you think about or things that are just crowded in your life. What things are in your life or your mind that are hindering you from faithfulness to Christ? That's the first question you've got to ask yourself, okay? You've got to ask yourself. I've got, I got to ask myself. What things are hindering me? What things do I need to gird up, in other words? When we think about Hebrews 12.1 again, let us lay aside every hindrance. Let me give you a personal example real quickly. 
And I've told my wife this many times. This was even before I met Trish. So I heard a, I heard a message many years ago, almost 20 years ago, on Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, I believe it was. But, but the Lord really showed me what was hindering me. That let us lay aside every hindrance. And, and I just, I was very, very convicted in that time because I was, that was really beginning the process of my life of really wanting to be more faithful in sharing my faith with others. And that hindrance. I said, what is hindering me from doing this? And it was the fear of man. It was a hinder. It was hindering me. And, 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 don't, and because I say that, don't think that I'm saying I never fear man anymore. But that was the first time that I really began to be honest about that. That hindrance. It could be a million things. What is hindering you? And so I think it's the same idea that Peter's talking about here. Gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare your minds for action. Find whatever those loose ends are in your life and gird them up. And then he says in verse 13, really keeping with the same thought, he says, keep keep sober in spirit. Keep sober in spirit. Be sober in spirit. I can't remember how... uh, some of the other versions said it, but keep sober in spirit. Think of mental intoxication, guys. To lose control of thought and action. And so, obviously, he's still thinking about, he's not necessarily talking about physical drunkenness, but he's still talking about our thinking, our minds. We have to have, rather than being out of control in our thinking, we have to have clarity in our thinking. Discipline. Okay? Discipline. The Christian life is about discipline. I think you guys know that. If you walk to Christ long, it requires discipline, self-control. Being steadfast against the luring temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The same language is used in, in this book in chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Why? For the purpose of prayer. So we can see the same principle there. The action of prayer. You got to be sober. You got to be in sober spirit. You got to be aware, spiritually alert, disciplined. And then in chapter five, verse eight, we see it again. Be of sober spirit. Be on the be on the alert. You hear it? Alertness. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I hope you can see it. He's calling us to be disciplined and get ready for action. That's what He's calling us to do. To get ready for action. And then point number two, be hopeful in our futures. We're still in verse 13. This is really the main emphasis of verse 13. Is this hope. Therefore, prepare your minds for action Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope. Again, this is the main emphasis of verse 13. To fix your hope. It's another word of encouragement. Right? Who is he writing to? Persecuted believers. He's telling them. Verses, I mean really verse 3 through 12, this great salvation that he's he's encouraging these believers. And He's given them another word of encouragement. Again, this hope. He talks about the hope in verse 3. In this verse, in verse 21, chapter 3, verse 5, chapter 3, verse 15. He keeps bringing it up, this hope. 
And so this is the part I said I was going to repeat because I finally got the Plangman boys here that I can share this with both of you guys. You don't know how much I want to do that. So what does this word hope mean, guys? Right? We use that word hope a lot, right? Yeah, I hope this, I hope that. So we need to understand what this word means when the Bible talks about hope. It's a confident expectation based on a promise as compared to a wishful thinking. Alright? So you boys, I know are TCU fans, correct? Correct? Alright, alright. So, so we use this word in different ways, right? So like when your favorite team, let's say TCU is playing OU, and you guys are hoping that TCU will beat OU, I'm hoping that OU will beat TCU, right? We use that word, right? I hope, I hope they win. But is it based on a promise? No, it's just it's, uh, it's uncertainty or even wishful thinking. Really depending on how good your team is. So that's one way we use the word hope. The other way, the other way we use it is when mom promises you she's going to make your favorite breakfast. See, then you can have a confident expectation based on a promise. Does that make sense? That's the correct way. That's more along the way of this word is used when we see it in Scripture. A confident expectation based on a promise. Obviously from a God who cannot lie. And so he says, fix your hope completely or fully. Emphasizing it's a very strong hope. Hope is something that we... When we hope for something, guys, we hope for something that's in the future. Listen to Romans 8, 23-25. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So the whole idea of hope, guys, we don't hope in something we already have, right? It's something future based on a promise. And he says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This grace, guys, it's another way of saying fix your hope on that inheritance that he talked about earlier in the chapter, which is really a synonym for our salvation. Fix your hope on the salvation. And in this case, in verse 13, fix your hope on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When He appears, when you receive the final, full salvation that God promised you. It's ours already. It's reserved. But He's trying to get these believers, guys, again, these these believers are facing severe persecution. And He's saying, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Guys, think of all of the fulfilled prophecy that we read about in the Old Testament, right? Of His first coming. I mean, down to the detail of where He would be born. How He would be born. The persecution He would face. The suffering He would go through. How He would die. All of these things. Can I encourage you to to be encouraged by that? 
Because the same God has given us promise of a second coming. And He is coming. He's going to come. Exactly like the Bible says He's going to. And we don't do that. We don't do that enough nowadays. We want to argue about eschatology instead of finding our hope in the fact that He is coming. And when He comes, He's bringing our complete salvation with Him. We'll receive our resurrected bodies. Our salvation will be full. And that's what Peter's encouraging these believers with. But we've we've really just got it so good in America. We've had it so good that we don't find the hope in those things like, like he was encouraging these readers. We just argue about it. But guys, find hope in it. Find hope in Christ's second coming. And then in verse 14 through 16, we're going to spend the rest of our time about being holy. Being holy in our lives, okay? Being holy in our lives. First question I want to ask is what does holiness look like? In verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. So let's camp out in that verse for a moment. What does holiness look like? I think we could say holiness looks like, in a, in a very general way, obedience. Obedience to God. Um, obviously, I would say I would want to add heartfelt obedience, not just outward conformity, but heartfelt obedience. Listen to what he says. He says, as obedient children. Who are we children of, right? We're children of God, the Most High, the one and only God, the Holy God. As children in God's family, we are characterized. What he is saying, as obedient children. Children of God God are characterized in the Bible as obedient. Obedient to God. That's the way we're characterized. Why is that so important to be reminded of in our culture? Because, and it's getting less and less, but I mean, every other person says they're Christian, right? But nobody, nobody even cares to think about this thing called obedience. But the Bible characterizes children of God by obedience. Unbelievers are characterized by disobedience. Ephesians 2, chapters 1-3, through we can see that. I think it's real important to make that distinction. In Ephesians 2, Paul is writing to these um, Gentile believers. He's just reminding them in the first few verses of their, their life of unbelief. And he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's the way the Bible describes an unbeliever. Okay? We need not be naive about that. Okay? We cannot ultimately and finally determine whether somebody is saved or lost. But the Bible describes an unbeliever as a son of disobedience. It even goes on to say, among them we too all formerly live in the lust of our flesh. I mean, you can see the description of this disobedience. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath. An unbeliever is described by disobedience. We need to remember that. We need to not be naive and let our emotions cloud our thinking when we're having people swear to us that oh, they believe in Jesus, but their life is just characterized by disobedience. 
A person like that needs the Gospel. They need to be warned to repent and to come to Christ. When there's just when I say disobedience, the Bible is speaking about a lifestyle of disobedience. No repentance. No brokenness. No hatred of sin. A love of sin. And full disobedience to God. But in verse 14, we also see a prohibition. He says, as, as obedient children, do not, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. We see a prohibition. Don't be conformed. This phrase is used only one other time in the New Testament. I bet you can probably guess where it is. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that word, don't be conformed, it just has the idea, don't pattern your, your life or your actions after the world. Paul uses the word world. Peter uses the, the word lusts or passions. Don't be conformed to, your, to the former lusts or passions which were yours in your ignorance. But it's the same language. The world or the lust or the passion. It's all the same language, right? 1 John 2, 15-17. What did John say? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Then what is the world? He says, all that is in the world, the lust of the world, or the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So it's the same language. We're not to be conformed to the world or to these former lusts that used to describe us before Christ. And he says, don't be conformed to these lusts which were yours in your ignorance, right? Before Christ. In your B.C. days, in the, where you were, you were ignorant of God, you were ignorant of His ways, you were ignorant of your own sin. Ephesians 4.18 describes these Gentile unbelievers being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. And so, what he's saying is these lusts, these passions, were dominant in our old life. Were they not? Now, if you're in here and you were converted as a young person, you, you, you don't identify with that as much. But those of us who were, who were converted a little, as we were a little older in age, we can identify with that. These passions and these lusts that dominated, they dominated our old life. Now, can a Christian fall or struggle? Absolutely. Absolutely. Peter wouldn't be using this language if they couldn't. Peter wouldn't be saying, don't be conformed to these former lusts if you couldn't be conformed to these former lusts. So yes, the Christian can fall or struggle. But that is, that is different than being dominated by these passions and lusts. Falling or struggling or battling against is totally different than completely being dominated by an unbroken pattern of sin. But listen to Romans 6, 17 and 18. It's always so good to keep these things in balance. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. 
And having been freed from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. The idea is that now that we're in Christ, we have been set free from the power and dominion of sin. But we have to be on guard not to be conformed to these old lusts, these old patterns of thinking and living. And then in verse 15, there's a, there's a but there. But signals a, this word is sig- signaling a strong contrast to the behavior we just looked at related to our former lusts. But, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. The Holy One who called you. He says, but like the Holy One who called you. God initiated, He is saying, He is telling these readers, He initiated and He came in power calling them. And the same is true for you today. If you know Christ, God came in His power. He called you. He visited you in His power, what we call the internal call, the effectual call. That's what's going on here. This is the effectual call. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians describing this effectual call, the means of it. He says, He called you through our Gospel. That's what Jeff was just speaking about with what Lynn came in and said. It all ties back to Romans 1.16. That's why we preach the Gospel. That's why we tell our friends about the Gospel. Because God calls effectually through His Gospel. This call is the internal call that goes out to God's elect. And it's a summons. It's the language of John 6 where Jesus said, nobody can come to Me unless the Father draws Him. That's what this call is. It says the Holy One who called you. In chapter 2, verse 9 in 1 Peter, He says He called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. This calling of God. Have you been called of God? Has God called you? John says He calls us by name, Jamie. He calls us by name to come to Him. 1 John 1, 5 and 6, it says, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Beloved, the Word says He called us out of darkness into His light. But there's always an examination that the Word gives us. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, if we say that we have been called in the light, yet we walk in darkness, there's that unbroken pattern of disobedience. The Bible says we lie and do not practice the truth. And it says that He's a holy God and a holy calling. Okay? This holy God called us to a holy calling. 2 Timothy 1.9 God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. He calls us to holiness. Guys, God calls us to holiness. Christ said there's many who profess My name with their mouth, but their hearts are far from Me. No, He calls us with a holy calling. God is holy. He is set apart in majesty from His creation. 
And He is perfectly pure. That's who called us. And He called us with a holy calling. Whereas in verse 14, we see the prohibition not to be conformed to the former lusts. Now in verse 15, we see the positive side. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior or conduct or manner of conversation. That's what He's calling us to. Be holy yourselves. In other words, we are to be imitators of God. It says, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. We're to be imitators of God. This is the idea of moral separation from evil unto a committed life of righteousness. In all your behavior, in all your conduct, in all manner of conversation, the idea is it's not just outward, but it's inward. It's when nobody's watching. It's when that's who who you truly are on the inside. It's not just avoiding sin, but it's delighting in Jesus Christ. It's delighting in God, in the inward man. The language Paul uses in Romans 7. In his struggle with sin, yet he delights in the law of God in his inward man. That's one of the best indications to me that Romans 7 is Paul describing this as a believer. Because he delights in the law of God. The, the, the Word of God says the unbeliever hates the law of God. But it's this whole idea in all of our behavior. It's really a man or woman of integrity. Webster's Dictionary of 1828 describes integrity like this. A few of the words. Moral soundness or purity. Incorruptness. Upright. Honesty. Genuine. Unadulterated. This is the idea. Being made holy in all of our behavior. Now we've looked at what holiness looks like. Summed up in obedience. Heartfelt obedience. Having a heart change. Not being conformed to our old life. But walking in the light. This is, a, this is obedience in all of our life. All of our behavior. Being a, a, a person of integrity. Genuineness. But let's try to bring it all home now. Let's try to bring it all home. Let's look at two questions. Why should I be holy? And how can I be holy? Why should I be holy? And how can I be holy? Before we answer those questions, look at verse 16 real quickly. I'm going to read 15 and 16. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That phrase, you shall be holy for I am holy, is quoted out of Leviticus. It's, it's said in Leviticus, stated many times. Leviticus just emphasizing the holiness of God. So before you get bored when you're reading through your Bible and just skip Leviticus, remember guys, it is emphasizing the holiness of God more so than any other book. That our sin requires death. That the sh- there has to be shedding of blood for atonement of sin. But that's where this quote is from. You shall be holy, for I am holy. And so before we answer our two questions, I think it's very important to remember this, guys, that this is not speaking of 
You shall be holy, for I am holy, to earn your way to me, to earn your salvation. That's not what the Word of God is ever saying, and that's not what's ever being said behind this pulpit. So we're not trying to earn our way to God by our holiness. Okay? Spurgeon says this, Holiness is not the way to Christ. Christ is the way to holiness. Okay? Don't ever get those confused. You end up in in complete heretical damning doctrine. That's the difference in Christianity and everything else that's ever been created right there. They say holiness is the way to Christ. The Bible says Christ is the way to holiness. And so, and to be holy is to be set apart. Okay? If we're, if we're going to talk about being holy, let's, we've got to at least understand what it means. It's to be set apart. Really, and it's got two, two aspects to it, positionally and practically. So in Christ, guys, we're already made holy. Positionally. We are, we are set apart in Christ. We are positioned in heaven. We are seated in heaven. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We've been set apart in Christ. God sees us as holy because of our identification with Jesus Christ. He has clothed you with the robes of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that. He made Him to be sin for our... He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We have been made righteous, made holy because of Christ's righteousness. But this text here today, guys, it's really speaking about how we can be holy practically. How we can live it out in our life. To be holy is to be set apart. So, first question, why should I be holy? Why should I be holy? I wrote down three reasons. The first one, we already looked at, but we're going to look at again. To imitate our Father in verse 15. Why should I be holy? To imitate our Father in verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. So that's reason number one, to imitate our Father. If you guys remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, we, we, we went through this text probably almost a year ago. Matthew 5, 44 and 45. Jesus said, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In other words, be holy. That's what a holy life looks like, is loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you. He said, But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And if you guys remember, that's not saying that if you do these things just well enough, then somehow God will accept you as His Son. What the language means in that verse is that when you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you, you are demonstrating that you're a child of God. That God truly is your Father. It's it's displaying the family resemblance. We're imitating God. We're imitating Christ. And so obviously, guys, God is perfect. We're not. But we should desire and strive to be like our Father. To be like Christ. That's the language here. And I will have you guys know as well that I think any, any man who's truly been called to pastor a church has this desire that Paul shared in Galatians 4. 
My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. God's desire, guys, is that you be holy. My desire for you and myself is that we be holy. That we be conformed to Christ. That Christ is formed in you. I mean, what a better description of holiness than if Christ is formed in us, right? Christ is the one who is holy. So why should I be holy? To imitate our Father. Second reason, why should I be holy? Look at verse 16. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Is that reason enough? Because it is written. His Word is our authority. Because it is written. Again, Peter, that's what he's saying. Peter is quoting the Old Testament Scriptures to these readers. Because it is written. We should be holy because it is written in Holy Scripture. Be holy for I am holy. And His Word is our authority. Psalm 119.89 Forever, O Lord, Your Word is settled in heaven. It is written. It's settled. God's desire and even His command for us is to be holy. And then thirdly, why should I be holy? Because of His grace. Because of His grace. Beloved, can I remind you and myself that we don't deserve His grace? That's the point of grace. We don't deserve it. None of this stuff we're reading about. He caused us to be born again. We have this inheritance, this salvation that's ours, that's reserved. The King of the universe, who is, who is, as we see, He's perfectly holy. We're sinful. And yet He came to this earth, the very earth He created, and took our sin upon Himself and was butchered upon the tree. We don't deserve this. Grace, unmerited favor. Why should I be holy? Because of His grace and because what we have been looking at in these texts, what He has done for us. Again, therefore, therefore because of what God has done for you, be holy. Listen to 2 Timothy 1.9. I read part of the verse a while ago. God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works. God didn't call you because you were smarter than your neighbor. Or because He just saw so much potential in you. But according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. By grace we have been saved. Through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. Beloved, we should be holy because of His grace. That should be a motivation for us to be holy. Because of what Christ has done for us. It shouldn't be a a, a dread in our lives. Not only what Christ has done for us, but what Christ has done in us. Through the new birth. Through the new affections of the heart. So we should be holy because to imitate our Father, we should be holy because it is written, commanded in Scripture, we should be holy because of His grace. Which really leads us to our last, our last point here. 
Our last question to answer, how can I be holy? And it's really just pick it, uh, continuing off of this, off of the last, the third reason because of His grace. How can I be holy? Grace. It's all grace. How can I be holy? Grace. What I want you to see in this text, guys, that we've looked at today, that it is the very grace that we're hoping in that enables us to be holy. Grace is your enabler to be holy. Now I know in legalistic circles, man, they would they would frown on that. What, what would people say in the, in the legalistic circles? Grace? Well, you just believe in God's grace so you can sin all you want. But that's not what the Bible teaches. This is not in my notes. But uh, flip over to first. I about said first Titus. Titus, chapter 1. And then I'll pick up. Because we, we think about, oh, you know, you're just you you you're you're so focused on grace, then then you're just gonna go out and sin all you want. But listen to what the Bible says about grace. And then I'll and then I'll pick up again. This is this is not written down, but I think this is really rich here. First uh, <laughs> about do it again. Titus chapter one. Uh well, let's see what where it's no, you know what? I think it's chapter two, because I didn't have it written down. Yeah, two. Titus two, starting in verse eleven. Now now let's let's just get in our minds right now, guys, because we're gonna talk about grace for a few moments. When we think about grace, just grace and Christ, okay? They're interchangeable. Grace and the person of Christ. Okay? And and, and Titus two eleven. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us, listen to what the grace of God does, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'll go ahead and read 14. Who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. I'm just going to try to tie all this language together. But listen to the language in that verse. The grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ instructs us. It's not like an intellectual thing. It's it's when we come to know Christ. Paul phrases it in Ephesians, you have not learned Christ in this way. When we come to know Him, when we come to learn Him in a personal and an experiential way, His grace instructs us through the new birth to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. It's His grace at work in you that creates holiness. And in verse 13, it's, it's really some of the same language. This hope that we see that we're talking about in Peter. I'm going I'm to get my place back in Peter. 
13 in Titus 2, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our, of our, of our uh, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This grace, this hope we've been talked about that we find in Christ is where we get this power, where we get this desire, where we get this spiritual fuel to live a holy life. It's not in us. It's not in our old man. Our old man's dead. It's, but it's in the new life in Christ. Now listen to John. You can turn there if you want. 1 John chapter 3. This is what I had written down. So we see the grace of God that's really revealed in Christ in Titus. It, it, the, it, that's what teaches us to be a holy person. To live holy. And then listen to 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Again, the question, how can I be holy? 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Here's that appearing, that appearing that's talking about in Peter. Because we will see Him just as He is. And listen to this, guys. And everyone who has this hope fixed, or has this hope fixed on Him, Christ, purifies Himself just as He is pure. What does Peter say in verse 13? Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is John saying? The exact same thing. Remember the Word of God does not contradict itself. He says everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself. So you see, as we fix our hope on Christ, not only on His appearing, but on our, our salvation that He's been talking about in 1 Peter. As we rejoice in Christ, as we remember our great salvation that we talked about last time, as we fix our hope on Him, as we set our mind on things above, the power to live a holy life, guys, flows out of His grace that He's given us in the new birth. He has saved us by His grace. He has called us by His grace. We fix our hope on this grace. We fix our hope on our salvation that's going to be revealed when He comes back. Fully revealed. And in doing so, it says, we're purified. What, is it, what does it all get down to? Christ. Keeping your focus upon Him. Not upon your performance. Not upon yourself. So many times we focus on our sin. And we take our focus off of Christ. He is your power. He is your source. I tried to remember without writing it down, but one of the songs Jeff was singing, I mean, it was, everything is in Christ. Right? Our hope is in Christ. What's the title of the sermon? Be, be, be hopeful. Be holy. What is your hope in? Christ. How are you to be holy? Christ. What He's done and what He's going to do. All of your hope and all of your holiness is in Christ. He's given you positional holiness, positional righteousness. You're already holy in Him. And He empowers you to live a righteous life. You think of the promise of the new covenant. Right? New hearts. 
We don't have to teach our neighbor to love Christ or to know Christ. We're all going to know Him. Every member of the New Covenant knows Jesus Christ through regeneration. Takes the heart of stone out, gives us a heart of flesh. That's the power to live a holy life. Our responsibility, and we do have a responsibility, prepare our minds for action, be disciplined, exercise the means of grace, press into Jesus Christ, exercise the means that God has given us within the local church, fellowship, prayer, Bible study, sitting under the Word, participating in the Lord's Supper, all of these things as we... What are we going to do? What, are, what is this all about? Focusing upon Christ, worshiping Christ, remembering what He did for us. Let me finish with Galatians 2, uh, 2 verse 20, guys. And we're just... I'm going, to, I'm going to read Galatians 2, 20. Make a few comments on it. Then I'm going to pray for us, okay? And then we will... Um, after I'm done praying, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. So we've been looking at this hope that we have, guys. We've been looking at our salvation, our inheritance, the hope we have in it, the hope we have in His second coming, when we're with Him, when our salvation is fully revealed, and now we even see it, guys, Christ in us. It's everywhere you look, it's Christ. What is the Christian life? It's Christ. What is your hope? Christ. What is your joy? Christ. What's your way to path to holiness? Christ. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So we see the power is in Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ in me. And in the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Oh, think of what Peter said in verse 8 in chapter 1. This faith that no, you have not seen Him. You love Him. Beloved, that's faith. And though you do not see Him now, but yet you believe in Him. Does that not sound strange? In the eyes of the world, you believe in Him whom you've never seen. But we have His promises. And we have His Spirit within us. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. God demonstrated His own love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved you. Let's remember that today when we take this supper. He loved you. And He gave Himself up for you as His child. He gave Himself up for you today. That's what we're remembering today, beloved. That He gave. The Creator gave Himself. Nobody took His life. He gave Himself up for you. Let me pray. Father, we come before You, Lord, and we thank You for Your grace. God, Your grace that is it's, it's more abundant, Lord, than we can ever imagine, Father. The fact that we can have relationship with You, the one true and holy God. Father, it's only by grace. And Lord, I pray that Your people would be reminded of that, God. Through Your Word today, Father, that our path to holiness is all wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. Positionally, 
And even in this life, Lord, as we live out this life, You're the one who gives us the energy spiritually. You're the one who gives us the desire. You're the one who gives us the power and victory over sin. You're the one who gives us the love for our neighbor. You're the one who gives us the desire to feast on Your Word, to fellowship, to pray. It's all from You. And Lord, we just thank You for it. We thank You for Your Your sacrifice upon the cross. We thank You, Lord Jesus, for giving Yourself up for us, for our sins. We just pray, Lord, that as we continue to worship You through the Lord's Supper, that You would encourage our hearts today. In Christ's name, Amen.